Yes, the saxophone player has left the studio. I'm Albert Bogle and welcome to Friday Night Live. And we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we especially want to uh, welcome my co-presenter with us tonight, uh, James Cuthcart. That was me just putting my saxophone away. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> wow. and, uh, and also a special welcome to Les Henson, who's uh, joining us from uh, Australia. From Melbourne in Australia. Hi. Neighbours. Everybody <laughs> needs good neighbours. It's actually, uh, the street is only about um, 15 minutes drive from where I live. Oh, there, oh, you, there go. you go. So quite appropriate. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jim, that's your song, Neighbours. And welcome to Jim tonight, who's that's joining it. us to give us some music. And we're hoping that the Piper Preacher and poet Chuck Steen will join us at some point. He's supposed to be joining us tonight, but something's maybe happened. His connection hasn't been there. Might have connection problems, yeah. So, but he may join us, and if he does, he'll be very welcome. So, so there, here, here we are tonight. We've not got Laura with us tonight. I can't start off by saying, what kind of week did you have, Laura? So we're going to start off with the gym. Jim, have you got a song for us tonight? Yes, I'm, I'm frantically thinking of something that would fit, but I, I, I've got a calling for a spirit of God and the soul of a man, uh, mainly because it, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that the, the song was written to um, a, try and help myself particularly just discover what I am and who I am. And I've got to remember that the spirit is, is deep within me. And yeah, I'm a man, I'm a flawed man along with it, but the spirit within me will conquer and will, will pull me forward. If you think that's appropriate. Yeah, let's go for it. Let's hear that. And I think that's got a kind of quest to it. A man on a, on a quest. Very, very much so. The first line is, I'm on my way to God knows where, because none of us really do know. Only God knows where we're going. <laughs> what we're doing. <laughs> Amen. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> Sorry, I'll need to change the key. <laughs> That'll sound better. Well, I'm on my way to God knows where. I'm on my way because I believe in prayer. Pick up my cross every single day. Oh, I talk to Christ along the way. Yes, I talk to Christ. I carry the spirit everywhere I go Oh, it shines like a light so everybody knows I fight each day with myself and sin Then sing comes along through my kin Then sing comes along through my kin I sing and sin, try to tear my way Search my soul every day There ain't much rest for the soul of a man When God said, come, you'll make it through the day you got a spirit of God and a soul of a man. You got a spirit of God and a soul of a man. Heaven only knows what I have to do. Well, my father's there to guide me through. Sing hurts my mind to make me fall. But the spirit's with me when I call. Yes, the spirit's with me when I call. 
Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. Um, do you know, I don't know about you, James, when you were thinking about this theme for this month that we're going through Sanctuary First, mm. what, what got you, what, what, what inspired you about this idea of the quest? Yeah, so it was kind of playing with this idea of questions. So a lot of meetings, Sanctuary First uh, planning meetings and production meetings we've had recently, we've been focusing on this idea of questions. It seems to keep coming up and this idea of the questions people have, um, even our approach in the services of having more discussions and more interactive elements, um, and perhaps um, opening up this idea that there are questions that you know we do have to live with um, and that don't necessarily get answers right away or not in this lifetime. Um, and so this idea of question, you know, I, I do poetry and, and write things. And so I like to play with the words. And so that's what got me onto the idea of quest initially um, and this idea of the journey. But then that's quite a, a good metaphor, isn't it, for thinking about um, getting lost, finding direction, getting detours, tangents um, and so on. So it was quite organic how that um, flowed out. And I liked uh, Jack's image. Jack always has an image for the theme each month and he's done another uh, image for this month and it's a lady at the crossroads um so so yeah that's kind of where yeah i, I mean the, these these images that he's producing are really good you know we're uh, you might be listening in we're, we're actually talking about making some t-shirts with all these different original um, um logos that's coming up for the different themes uh, last month's was really good and this month's is good as well and I know that you quite like uh, the one with the wee mouse. Oh, I love that wee mouse, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see it, Les? You want to see it, this wee mouse? Fantastic. Um, Listen, Les, just come back, if you can go back. And, you know, I was talking to, uh, James was asking us how long we've known one another. And uh, mm -hmm. it's um, longer than we, we, want to, we want to admit, but it's a long time. It's about yeah. it's nearly, nearly 50 years we've known one another. Yep. We, See, when you started out, we, we, we met in, in the summer mission of the Church of Scotland in 1970 down in Ayr. But when you started out being drawn to Christ and following Christ, what drew you to that place where you eventually ended up? I mean, you, your life has been such an amazing life. I mean, <laughs> from, from being, a, I think, from my memory, were you not a mining engineer or something? Yeah, that's correct. So you moved from being a mining engineer to become... Uh, I, I mean, a real hardcore missionary in, in, in a really out-of-the-way place area in Jaya. You're almost like an anthropologist. And from there, you've moved on to talk about missiology and be an academic. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a huge uh, 
experience in life. Yeah. But when yeah. you started out, you never, I take it you didn't think that's where it was going to go. I certainly didn't. Um, when I, I came from a non-Christian background, and so coming to Christ, in a sense, was a, an incredible transformation. It was an incredible change. I was working in the coal mines as an apprentice engineer at the time, and um, I, I came to faith, and I had this incredible desire to share my faith. But the trouble was, I was really bad at it. I was really <laughs> appalling. And I think I made so many mistakes on the journey. Um, and I think the first two years was incredibly hard working in a coal mine. Yeah. Uh, being a new Christian, not having the, um, the wisdom that I probably have 50, 50 odd years later. And I think I made every mistake that you can make uh, and a few more. Uh, in the process, and it was it was really difficult. Um, also, the fact is, um, I'm dyslexic. I don't know if you know that, Albert. No. Um, I'd never read a book in my life until I came to faith, and I'm still dyslexic. You never get over being dyslexic. Yeah. But I think with dyslexia, there's an element of creativity that has gradually emerged in my life uh, that wasn't there in the early days uh, because it, life was. It was a struggle and it was hard, but it was in um, that context that my faith began to grow. And, and I think one of the things I look back on um, is that when I became a Christian, I was part of a church where they gave you lots of easy answers. And I, I was born in a family that argued and debated <laughs> about politics and everything else. And I, I just didn't accept anything. And I was a pain in the butt, quite frankly. <laughs> I just questioned everything. And when people gave me answers, I, I, in a sense, I discipled myself by questioning. And I think questioning has kind of been at the heart of who I am. Mm. Um, I think we talked a little bit before the program about questions. And it, to me, uh, my journey has been one of asking questions all the way through. Um, I think my ministry has been about that in some ways. Uh, finding the questions, to me, if you find the right question, it can take you on a journey for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, you don't want the little questions, but you want the big ones that, that, that take hold of you and, and stimulate you and set you on a journey. And I think questions are very much like that. And that was at the very beginning of my journey. So, at the very beginning, these questions, and you know, so what was it that drew you to uh, think about going into becoming a missionary? Um, it, was a, it was a slow journey in a sense. Um, I think part of it started actually uh, probably about the second year I was on summer mission. Um, uh, well, it was a bit earlier than that. I, I struggled with my faith because uh, uh, in a sense, I was part of a, a church that was, I would coldly call it a, a kind of worldly Baptist church. Now, I hate that word, but you know what I mean? Uh -huh. it was, there was a, this, I went to church because um, uh, they had really good parties. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, there was quite a lot of nice girls there and all of those things, that was part of the motivation. Yeah, yeah well, I get it, I get <laughs> it. <laughs> which, is, which is not unusual when you no, kind no. of in, in your in 17, 18 and on into your 20s, that's quite a bit significant issue. Um, now, I forgot what the question was, Albert. Well, you're saying, what, what was it that drew you to, the, to, into, to, to think about being well, a missionary? Yeah, so uh, as I say early on, when I came to faith, I had a real passion to to share my faith, and I said I was really bad with it, but uh, I had, um, I, I was on a journey, I felt that from about 19, I came to faith in 66, about 1970 I was at the Keswick Convention, and I kn knew that uh, God spoke to me at that time, and uh, he, he called me into ministry, and I didn't have any clue what that meant, what it involved, but I always had a, a passion to share my faith. But as I say, I was really pretty bad at it. But in, in 72, I had an experience of the Spirit. 
and things just changed. I, uh, you were on that summer mission in 72, and I saw about 14 people I led to the Lord during that mission. And from that period on, I started to see regularly people coming to faith uh, through my ministry. And that was the kind of the starting point. And then I went into Bible college and I saw a lot of people who had come to, were coming in the, in the last year of Bible college and didn't have a clue what they were going to do. Uh, and I was kind of frustrated because I, I didn't know where God was calling me. Uh, and um, I started to ask God, look, to show me. And that went on for, this was in the first term in Bible college. I asked God to reveal and it went on. And then probably in February uh, 74, a missionary came uh, to the college, a Greek missionary. He had a, a bright red shirt and a yellow tie and, uh, and a suit on. And it, it really just didn't clash with, you know, in those days, my hair was quite long and all of those things. Uh, but God spoke to me, and within 24 hours of, of that, I knew I was going to West Papua, or Erie and Jaya, as it was called in those days. Now, don't tell me how I knew, but I knew. Um, but I remember when that was in 74, it wasn't until 77 we got to Papua, and I remember I'd prepared myself for this. I'd read everything I could, and I remember as we were touching down in Santani, which was the main airport in West Papua, I began to think, what on earth have I done? The sweat was pouring down. <laughs> and I was thinking, have I made a mistake on this? Um, and that was just a genuine, mm. real reaction. I thought, what have I let myself into? Uh, but that's often been the case as I've gone forward. I've wondered why, what, what is, what's God doing here? Because I felt fairly inadequate in many ways. As I say, uh, I'm dyslexic. Um, learning a new language and that is quite a mm. challenge. Um, but uh, I'm fairly stubborn as well. Uh, and I think that helps. <laughs> that can help. You know, that could definitely I'm just, help. I'm just listening to you. Jim, I wonder if I could bring you in, if you're listening, and if I can bring you into this discussion. Because I would imagine there's lots of things there that Les has been speaking about that interests you that you could see parallels. I know in some of the things that you shared with me, there's kind of parallels in, in that question. And you're like, you're, you're someone that always strikes me like, like Les, you're always, you never just take things for granted. You want to question it. Is that the engineering to say, is that the engineering thing? It, it, I don't know, it, Jim. It is, it is, it's true. It's, um, it, it, Les, I'm the same. I, I was late to discover that I had dyslexic, and, uh, but I, I didn't know what that meant. It was my wife that, 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 that helped me sort of find it out in a sense. But it explained a lot of things for me, but particularly for the next generation that was come out, coming up, my, my sons, we went and we got these guys tested so that at least they could understand why they were different. That was all. Um, but, you know, I fell out of school and get asked to leave, you know, at 15, at a time when, you know, that wasn't to be. Um, but then, uh, yeah, the, the, I, I was on a quest, if you like, to find how could I make myself worthy? How could I, how could I, I, I be a, a, a acknowledged as having some value? Mm. And engineering was what saved myself um, because I, I could deal with some real good facts. It was all about facts. It was all about that sort of stuff. Um, so, yes, um, I think there are so many people on a quest. Um, some of us are lucky to find a, a thread that we can follow before we find Christ. Uh, others, uh, even luckier if they find Christ, others know they're on a quest and they don't know why. And uh, they're mm -hmm. just looking for something uh, and, and something will, will trigger with them and will, will, will connect with them to get them to where they need to be safely. To, to, as we know now as Christians, um, God really fulfills an, our potential more than we would ever imagine. Mm. We, 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 don't, we can't even imagine my worth as I had saw it all these years ago was um, sixpence worth of nothing. It just, but now when you realize you have to accept uh, God's put a great deal of great gold dust and seed into us 
and mm -hmm. we have an obligation to fulfil it. You know, if we can take some of this a wee bit further, uh, Jim, James, you feel free to come in with mm -hmm. questions as well. Absolutely. But, uh, first of all, can I just say I'm I'm a conscious that we're 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 all men here talking tonight, and this is the first time we've had uh, a Friday night review where we've not had Laura or uh, you know uh, someone from the other the female sex in to to help bring different dimensions and clarity. So we're aware that there's, we're, we're maybe not got the balance that we need in part of our discussions tonight. But, so, uh, but it's not because we didn't want it, it's just the way it's happened tonight. But uh, let's just see where it takes us. But Les, one of the things we've been wanting to talk about was when you enter into a culture, a place that's different, that, you're, that, that, that you, is completely strange to you, it begins to affect your life and change you in understanding how to deal with people who are different. Now, I imagine when you were going into this situation, uh, you, you were finding yourself going to speak with a group of people. You couldn't speak their language. Mm -hmm. Is that right? You, you didn't know the language. Yeah. Yeah. And you wanted to share Christianity and they didn't know too much about, about Christianity? Um, no, we were the... Uh, well, yes and no, I would say, in, in that sense. Um, we were the first outsiders who went to live among them. In, uh, we, we'd, been, we'd, had, we'd been contacted earlier, but we were the first outsiders to go and live among this Stone Age people. Um, and uh, we had a word list of about 100 words that somebody else had written before we'd got in. And after about six weeks, I discovered about half of them were wrong. Uh, and so we were basically starting from scratch. Uh, but the, the one thing that uh, I always believe, and, and I've learned through that experience, is, is that God always gets there before you. Uh, we don't bring the gospel. God is all, we don't bring God. Uh, God may send us, but God is already there and God is already at work. That's a very powerful point, isn't it? To make in every situation in our lives, whether the culture, whether even if it's the 21st century sophisticated, God is there with those people as well who are questioning and asking and longing. Yeah, and really in a sense that the story, as far as I know, started probably, we kind of made, we made trips down in, in uh, 78 and uh, the, the airstrip was actually built in 77, but way back in the 60s, there was a man within the village called Moroku who, who, who was a dreamer. He had a dream. And in the dream, he was taken up to heaven and he was given this message that uh, people with white skins would come with a message of uh, the God of their ancestors that the ancestors knew but forgotten. And we would bring that message and they would come and they would cut down the trees at the ju uh, junction of the Sumer and Aking River. And uh, that's where the airstrip was built in 77. Wow. And the people prior to that believed if you cut down the trees, then heaven would fall, the sky would fall. Uh, but it didn't. And then we went in, uh, made, started making visits in uh, 78 and then 79, when our oldest son was four weeks old, we moved into the village. And, um, but God had already prepared the way through that dream, through that, that vision. And actually about, um, the first contact was made in 73. But just prior to that, the man who'd had the dream about three months before, um, he'd, had, he'd had the vision and he'd told to the people, but he, he died just about three or four months before. Uh, but the people were, were waiting for this, they were expectant. God had uh, prepared the way in that sense. Wow. Uh, and so it wasn't actually until I was finishing the very, well, the second last chapter of my PhD that I actually realized that the, the date that the first contact was made was actually the same time that God called me to West Papua. Huh. And I remember wow. when I actually put the two dates together, I just sat there at my desk in Monash University and tears streamed down my eyes uh, when I connected the dots, as it were, and realized that 
that it was actually that same, in the, the contact was made over a period of three days, and in the middle of that period, God called me to West Papua. Wow. Wow. So, <laughs> so how do you go about sharing the gospel when you, don't, when, when you can't speak the language? Yeah. Well, as I say, we had to learn the language, and uh, that was a hard and painful process of basically you point to things and then you learn. You don't point with your finger, you point with your chin okay. and your, your lip, and you learn those things, and you learn the body language, and you gradually build your vocabulary, and you learn to connect things. Why would you not point with your finger? Is there, was there some reason for that? No, no, it's just that's not the way that you point. You... It's kind of your chin and your, your bottom part of your lip and your, that's what you do. That's, oh, interesting. The, that's the cultural way. So you, you're not only learning the language, but you're learning a whole lot of cultural things, of how to communicate. Uh, I remember having a conversation when we'd been there about two years and um, I kept asking this lady about a particular thing. And all she did was raise her eyebrows. And I said, <laughs> well, you're not gonna give me a hand, an answer. And, she raised her eyebrows and it wasn't until shortly after I realized that she was saying yes, but she never spoke. I was wanting the verbal expression, mm, mm. but she simply raised her eyebrows and I was totally misunderstanding. I was thinking she just didn't want to give me an answer. She was being stubborn and totally <laughs> misunderstood. So She's just long trying long. to agree with you. She's just trying. Yeah, to. she was agreeing. But uh, and if you say no, you were well, like that. You point with your, uh, that's the expression. So it's difficult to, wow. uh, there's so many obstacles. It's not just the words, but it's, it's funny because I remember my father I, I used love, to I, do things like that, you know, when he wasn't too sure, he'd go, hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I love well, that I, idea. I love that idea that, 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 that we can communicate uh, as a spirit and we can communicate without saying anything. Because because I often think the things I say aren't that 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 clever and wouldn't <laughs> encourage anybody to 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 come of faith. But sometimes people have said, but the grace is there, the radiance that you have, either the smile in your face or what's in your eyes, the joy, the grace that's there. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I definitely have this hope that goodness, I hope it's not what I say that could help another, but I mm -hmm. hope it's the grace or the smile or anything that's yeah. in my, my eyes that could radiate the spirit and you've just explained that in as many gestures as an eyebrow or, or, or another gesture in another way or a song whatever <laughs> I remember reading an article um, that was uh, explaining why they thought Americans smiled so much and they were saying that because in American history you've always had well not always had but you know you've, you, you've had um, for so long people who don't have the same language you know living at close proximity mm -hmm. and that yeah. the smile is the way of like <laughs> A little bit of trust, like, you know, give me, you know, like you just try to like pump your eyebrows or give a little smile or whatever. And it is interesting when you think about this world of communication that really yeah. spoken language is just the top layer of it. Um, and there's so much in, um, in our body language and our behavior that you can communicate with. I wanted to ask though, because I think you said that was your oldest son four weeks old when you yeah. were, because that's, that's phenomenal. Great. So, because I'm a dad myself and um, my wee girl's seven months, but I've got, a microwave uh, and sterilizing equipment. And I've got a spoon, right, that will change color if our food's too hot. You know, right? So it's a little white <laughs> hot spoon and the tip yeah. of it will go white. Um, and so to think of you in those circumstances, um, how did you, how was parenting in that environment? I think it was a lot easier in some way. I mean, yeah, you, had, yeah. uh, you had some obstacles of, you didn't have all the, the mods and cons of all of, of Western life, but um, in some ways, because we were part of a community and the community looked, we, we had a lady that would come and she would put our, our son in a net bag and take him for a walk and he would be held up in the fetal position and go for a walk in the net bag. We had in, in this little two room kind of shack that we lived in the first uh, two or three years, we had a nail into the roof that was in a kind of hook shape and we had a little kind of bungee cord and we'd put Joel, our oldest son, in the net bag and hang him up and he'd bounce <laughs> up and down. Um, I'll tell Lily that we're getting a hook in the ceiling. <laughs> but, uh, 
but in a sense, I, I think the perfect, the perfect example of, of, of uh, Laura would be here. If she was here, she would testify to it. A woman does not need to say anything to show her pleasure or her displeasure. And they would always be able to express what it is that they want us to do or don't want us to do. And I'm absolutely sure uh, Laura or another would be able to uh, explain it in better terms than that. But the, it's the, 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 the ladies have a completely different way of yeah. expressing what is the right thing to do, what's the graceful thing to do. Yeah. So, Les, you're talking about nails. I remember you telling me a story about how you brought nails in. They'd never seen nails before. Uh, well, they'd never seen... Well, it wouldn't be quite true in a sense. Um, from the first contact, they began... Things had actually trickled in before because there was always trading routes. But the problem is if you get something like a nail or a stone axe coming in, it, it kind of begins to change their world. And some of those things happened before we came in. For example, in the Second World War, um, the, the, uh, the bombers used to fly uh, over from Australia to, to, to bomb the Japanese. And the planes started to fly over. Uh, and the people needed an explanation. So later on, I discovered that was part of their mythology. In a sense, it was incorporated in because what were these big birds flying across? They kept from that point on. Uh, but if you've seen the movie, uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy and the Coke bottle uh, dropping in from the sky, um, that, that begins to change the culture. And um, I mean, we tried to not bring we, we lived a very simple lifestyle, but uh, there was things we brought in that they had no explanation for. It was coming from a totally different world, a totally different uh, context. And I didn't fully understand that completely early on because you go in very green and you've got to learn the culture. You've got to learn uh, the impact of such things uh, that have on a culture that's never seen these things. Um, and the thinking that goes behind it, as we talked before, uh, in Melanesia particularly, but it's right across the world, is in fact, in, in different forms, but you have what it's called cargo cults. Now, we never had a cargo cult where people... Do you want to explain, for some people might not know about cargo cults, could you just well, it, explain briefly what that phrase well, means? A, car a cargo cult is the, the longing for possessions, the longing for the ideal life. Now, many cultures have got a, a story of how the world became bad the way it is at the moment, and uh, there'll be a future kind of, in the future, everything will become right and life will become perfect and everything will become wonderful. It's like rediscovering the garden. Uh, right. in Interesting sense. that, how everybody thinks that way. Yeah, and uh, so that was, uh, and the people always thought of, um, you know, maybe if we do the right thing or go through the right ritual then all of the, the belongings that uh, we should have had in the beginning will actually come. But the, the, but the problem is with cargo cults, there's no concept of time. Uh, it, it is this myth of, of what will happen. And you've got to go through the right rituals. You've got to do the right things. You've got to have the right magic for it to come about. Uh, and it doesn't happen because you get it wrong, but one day you'll get it right. So you, so some, you get caught up in that kind of myth, mythology that you're part of the cargo, that you, you're seeing yeah, I, the I, answer. Well, I began to realize that we needed to be really careful of what we introduced. And I mean, I had a concept of that, but when you begin to understand the thinking, you re realize how careful you need to be. And yet in a sense, they're going to come into the, at that time, into the 20th century. Uh, so how can you take them from here <coughs> into that world that they're going to have to confront? Because the Indonesian government was gradually encroaching and they were going to have to face that in any case. So you, part of the thing was to prepare them for that as well.
Did you not tell me a story <coughs> in Bowness when we went to Bowness? One of the first yeah. missionary projects we did. We raised money for a generator for you. Yes, that's right. And you told me a story. Did you not take the chief? Did you not go up in an aeroplane to? Oh, uh, yeah. That was before. That was prior to that. Yes, but um, one of the things after about a, a couple of years, uh, we needed to explain to the people where we came from and, and all of that because we were people with white skins who were Ketumi uh, Minya, people with white skins and um, I took one of the, the leading men in the village out to the coast and uh, he, first thing he did actually was he looked around and he said oh that's north, that's south, he looked at the sun and got directions because that's important in the culture but we, we travelled from where we were at the coast into the main capital of uh, was this province. by transport by car or by plane by car, uh, by car we took him well we took him by plane but then he got into a car and i remember traveling back from jayapura which is about an hour's drive away he, he, he wouldn't he, he couldn't fall asleep and i said why don't you just go to sleep he said but my soul might get left behind because uh, you know he was traveling so fast he right. thought his soul would get left behind. Right. And then when he came back to the village, he spent about two weeks every night. The, the whole village was up till two, three in the morning and he told the stories. But what he was explaining to them was that which was unexplainable in a sense. Mm. Because if you've never seen a car, you've never seen a multi-story house, um, uh, you've never seen concrete, uh, just you've never seen roads. And, how do you explain that to someone who's never seen those things? And so he was trying to explain that, which in some ways is almost unexplainable. And do you um, think that was a good thing for him? Or um, did, would that uh, shock him in some way? It, I was concerned that we prepared them for the future. And it was a gradual process of preparing them. I didn't do that initially, but after a few years, I did that because they needed to understand that uh, one of the things he said, he said, there's more of these white people. And he said, there's more of these uh, cassowary haired people, that is the Indonesians with straight hair. And so he explained that there's lots of these people uh, because we were the only outsiders uh, that they'd encountered. So mm. their world was very small in comparison uh, to our perspective on the world. So and what was their morality like? Did they have a, mor did they have a moral code? Uh, well, I think all people have a moral code and um, it, wasn't mean, it didn't mean that they were always moral, but uh, you know, yeah. they had certain rules and regulations and what you could do and what you couldn't do who you could marry and who you couldn't marry. Um, for example, uh, sin is not what you do. You, you, sin, is what, uh, sin is what you do to insiders. You never steal from insiders. You don't kill insiders into the clan, but it's not sin to kill an outsider, an enemy. But it is right. to, it's not no. sin to steal, it's sin to steal from <laughs> an insider, but not from an outsider. Uh, and so you had this inside-outsider perspective on life. Um, and you, you had to treat your, the inside as people of your clan, of your tribe, with respect and in certain ways. But then outsiders didn't fit into those categories. So mm. for, for me uh, and my wife, we had to become insiders to be accepted. Uh, otherwise, they, would, they could kill us, they could do all kinds of things because you... You can do anything to an outsider, but an insider you've got to treat respectfully, you've got to care for them, you've got to look after them. You treat and them and the way you become an insider is to become known to them and, be, and become, how do you become, trust, become trusted? You, you, well, it's building through, it's building, through building relationships. Uh, I was adopted by two of the men in the village. Uh, they became my fathers, I became their sons. Hmm. Um, went through a kind of, uh, this was later on, 
began uh, went through a version of initiation into the into the clan. Uh, we adopted that because the things that uh, uh, as a Christian probably couldn't go through, but we adopted that, and was I was adopted and and um, became part of the clan system uh, wow. and part of the community, which you need to do. Otherwise, you're an outsider, and you will be forever an outsider. Wow. Now, did, you find, uh, did you find yourself over your time living there um, thinking about God differently, you know, in terms of, because you're quite a young man going out there and yeah. new family and sort of a key hinge point in your life. And you said that you've always had these questions, but did the questions change or evolve through this radically different experience and worldview? Well, yeah, of course I did. I think one <laughs> of the first things, one of the first times I became aware of the difference differences. When I was traveling down for, I was going down periodically to visit before we moved there permanently. Mm. Um, I took down some flowers and planted them outside this kind of very temporary house that we lived in. Uh, it was probably less smaller than the size of our living room, the whole house and that. And, uh, and I planted them outside. And when we moved down, the flowers were, were beginning to grow and bloom. And one of the older men in the village kept coming to me and he said to me, Les, uh, when are you going to eat those things? <laughs> and I said, no, those flowers are for looking at, not for eating. And then a few days later, he came and said, Les, when are you going to eat those? I said, no, you look at them. You don't eat them. And he had no concept of things you would plant to look at. Just to look at. Things to eat. And so one morning, about uh, 10 days later, I got up and went to my little veranda, which was about a, a meter and a, a half wide and looked over and all the tops of the flowers had been cut off. And Sakieni, this man, had come in the middle of the night and he'd, he'd cut them off and he'd partaken of my flowers. <laughs> and it wasn't until about uh, two or three days later, I, I used to go to the river about four o'clock in the afternoon before everybody came back from the jungle and uh, it was a way of getting rid of my frustration. I would pick up stones and I would skim them or I would throw them at a log in the river. And as I was doing that, I began to think and realize the significance of that because his worldview said, you don't plant anything that you're not going to eat. Mm. My worldview said, you plant flowers to look at. And I realized that our worldview was so far apart that I had to get into their worldview and understand their worldview, mm. unless if I was going to communicate the gospel. But that was just the beginning. I remember later on, um, there were so many things. I think I learned a, a great deal about community. Mm. Uh, I was in a communal society and uh, coming from a very Western individualistic society. And that began to change the way I think even the way I began to read the Bible, because mm. when Paul writes, say, for example, in the epistles, and he says, you do this, or you to them, he's not talking about you individually, which I'd been used to reading that, but he's talking to a community. And it's not, uh, it's not to an individual the words are spoken, but to a community. So even when, say, when he talks about the passage in Ephesians on spiritual warfare, He's not, he's not talking about a community. It's about the spiritual warfare of the whole community. And yes. not me as an individual. Uh -huh. it's, it's not that we've got all of the abilities to, to cope with this, but as a community we have. And to begin to understand that. Um, mm. I remember when um, we'd been there about three years, uh, and the government, uh, it was a government election, Pamilu, which was the election across all of Indonesia. And the government sent all the uh, paraphernalia for an election. They sent the voting boxes and the, the voting tokens and all of mm. these kind of things. And they sent a hundred kilo sack of rice. Uh, so everybody would vote <laughs> for the Sahato, the, his party, and uh, as was expected. But they never said it, send anybody to hold the election. And people were excited about this thing, Pamilu, the election. They didn't mm. know what it was, but it kind of got their imagination. 
And I thought, well, what do we do? We do nobody's coming to do it. And so after some thought, I thought, well, we'll do the Melanesian thing. We'll have a feast. And so people went off to the jungle and killed about 12, 13 pigs. And people, the women went out and got snakes and lizards and, and they got sweet potatoes. And we cooked up a whole a hundred kilo sack of rice. But I thought, let's do something different. Instead of doing um, the religious thing of having, let's, let's have a sports day. And they had never had a sports day. So we did some number of events and, and I introduced the high jump. And I remember <laughs> I put some poles with nails in and a bamboo across and people would go and jump over and we'd raise the bar. And this one man ran forward and he stopped and he ran forward and, and, and he was really hesitant. And he knew that if he didn't do it, everybody would laugh and cheer and jeer and all of it. <laughs> and then two men to the right of me simultaneously said, go and make the jump, this is God's work. <laughs> Why? And, I, and I stood and I was stunned. I said, God's work? In my mind, I was thinking, yeah. we had an ele election that didn't take place. We've never done anything spiritual or religious. And all of a sudden I realized as a secular Westerner, I'd got it wrong because mm. everything we do is God's work. Everything we do. Yeah. And I learned that um, my spirituality was so embedded in my secularism and my mm. Western worldview of things, my engineering background and all of that, that I have to begin to see my spirituality in a more holistic sense. Uh, in a real, uh, rather than this so individual, um, compartmentalized view of the world, mm. uh, which we mm. all, uh, all of us growing up in, in certainly a modern world, that's how we view the world. And particularly as an engineer, you're used to analyzing, putting things into boxes and sorting things out, whereas they view the world as a whole and God is in everything. Uh, whereas we, have this little compartment on a Sunday where God yes. fits into and yes. not everything we do in life. And I oh, think that was yeah. and of course that was part of the thinking of the early Celtic Christians way back centuries ago that yeah. God was the, 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 the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, mm -hmm. total experience. Yeah, um, that's yeah. such a beautiful idea of this. Um, you know what could have been this kind of cynical ploy to get votes and this political stunt and everything turning into this feast and this sports yeah. day that is of yeah. God and for God and with God. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's really. And lovely. so you kind of, you, you, it's a slow process of learning. Yeah. I mean, you you go there initially, think I've got something to bring, but when you go, you as you begin to learn, you realize you get far more than you receive and you learn far more. Yes, you do. You don't bring God, but you do communicate a reality of God that is missing. Mm. And it's certainly missing because in the village we lived in, when, we, when I arrived, there wasn't a man over 16 who'd never committed murder. Mm. Uh, I mean, that was the reality. It, uh, it, was, it wasn't this ideal you know, paradise, uh, the mm. noble savage mm. idea. Uh, there was some wonderful aspects of the culture, but there was a dark side of the culture. And that's true of every culture. Mm. And even our Christian culture, there Absolutely. is a dark side. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we too often spiritualize things and we fail to recognize that. Uh, that within each one of us is a dark side. Absolutely. And I think that... There's a sense in which every one of us casts a shadow. Mm. Uh, there's always a shadow. And uh, we've got to recognize there's that shadow that we cast, which is in a sense, uh, it's just an image, but it, it's mm. that mm. aspect of the dark mm -hmm. side of us. Absolutely. No, I was just going to return to what you said about compartmentalizing. I think that can be part of the problem sometimes is that, yeah. you know, if our faith is something which is, maybe a wee bit tepid and you know an hour on Sunday or whatever then it doesn't have room for the light and shadow or or anything really yeah. um, that actually you know reflects more of life mm -hmm. mm. yeah can we take a break just now I mean I think it's been fascinating talking with you Les I mean 
Uh, I, I hope we can talk a wee bit more tonight. But Jim, do you have another song for us? Well, yes, I, I, I've got a couple of songs that I was just thinking over as I'm listening. Uh, but there's one just came to, to my mind prominently there. Um, it's called, uh, He's Cheering Us All The Way. <clears throat> and it, it's my vision of, of God, a, a little picture in my mind, about God sitting with the angels. And it's like a school sports day, just as you describe, Led. And he's cheering and he's, he's watching us in this race of life. But it's a race of life, not just the end of year sports day or a celebration. And I, I get this feeling that God's inviting us to run in this race for us to fall, to get back up, to keep going, and just to do what we can do and keep cheering. And uh, this, this little song I put together just to remind myself that life's a race, it's a sports day, and we've got God and we've got the angels cheering us on the whole way. <laughs> I've walked with the Lord Many times he saw me fall Waiting in the wings just for me He shadows my path And waits patiently Many times the Lord is willing me He's clapping, praising, he's cheering all the way He won't let you down Lord, amen, don't you wait, so trust in the Lord, and light up your way, so heads up and praise the Lord today. My life has been changed, the very day I prayed to Him, asking for forgiveness for my sin. He opened my eyes to see His joy and happiness. None of which the likes had so before. He's clapping, praising, cheering all the way. He won't let you down. Whatever comes your way, so trust in the Lord and light up your way. Heads up and praise the Lord today. So shout to the Lord. Show them how you love them so. Best of all, share it with your friend. He'll bless you and go. Teach you how to live. Bring love and kindness to mankind. He's clapping, praising, he's cheering on the way. He won't let you down, whatever comes your way. Some trust in the Lord. Light up your way, heads up and praise the Lord today. He's clapping, praising, he's bearing all the way. He won't let you down, whatever comes your way. So trust in the Lord to light up your way. Heads up and praise the Lord today. Just a sports day. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's interesting. That was sports day. Yeah, do you think that was a breakthrough in 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 communication with with people at that time, with the having the the sports well, day or the celebration? Well, uh, it, it was a breakthrough, but not for them. It was for me. Yeah. Because I suddenly realized that um, I had a compartmentalized view of Christianity, which uh, most of us did, because that's the world we lived in. Yes. And all of a sudden, I realized that God is in everything. And not in everything in the pantheistic sense, but God is in every part of life. and. We've got to have a holistic view that God is not just concerned with this spiritual uh, part of our life, but he's concerned about the whole thing. And God is, uh, yeah. And, and it, so if we were then to take that learning point into ministry today, into missiology today, that you teach as a missiologist and teaching people, what is the learning point then that, you, that, that we say to people today? 
Well, I, I just think, I think as Westerners, um, as I was reading through the material just there last night to, to look through, I think uh, one of the problems for us as Western Christians is that um, we don't know how to take our shoes off and, and uh, stand on holy ground. Yeah. And we, Andrew Walls, the Scottish missiologist, uh, uh, historian who was at Edinburgh and before that at Aberdeen, he, he talks about Westerners, um, unlike say the Japanese or the Buddhists who, uh, when they go into the house, they take their shoes off. Uh, when they go into the temple or the mosque, uh, they take their shoes off. We go into the temple wearing draping hobnail boots and we trample all over it. And we have this kind of Christianity that is, is like that. And we've got to learn to be sensitive mm. to realize that uh, other people's spirituality is important. And as I say, God gets there before we do. Mm. And so we've got mm -hmm. to be open to, um, to, in a sense, what God has done uh, mm. before we have got there. And that's true. I learned that on the, uh, in summer mission on the streets of Glasgow and in coffee shops. The number of times I discovered that, uh, in a sense, being led by the spirits, began to talk to people and discovered that God was already at work. Yeah. Um, and I think we've got to realize that, that we, it's not so much we bring the gospel, but we participate in what God is already doing and yes. done in the lives of people and so often we think oh we've come we've got the answers um instead we've got to i say to students over and over again when you go into a new mission context you've got to listen and listen and listen and then you've got to listen and listen and listen some more and <laughs> listen a little bit more before you open your mouth uh, because the listening uh, we saw often, particularly those who come from an evangelical background or perspective, we want to speak, we want to tell. And uh, you can't tell, you can't communicate until you've listened. Mm. Now, let me, let me give one example from the very early days. Um, when we came to our, the village of Suma, we began to do medical work. Now, we had about two days training in that, but you, you realize you've got a lot of experience in these things just naturally of being in the Western world. But um, we'd, we'd hold a clinic and people would come and, uh, and uh, the women would come and, uh, and everybody would come, but often the women would come breastfeeding their babies and they were filthy and their babies were filthy. And we would say, look, do you not love your kids? If you loved your kids, you would wash them. And that was our mentality. But what we didn't understand that if you went to the river and you washed, the river spirits could steal the breast, the breast milk of a woman or take the dirt off the body and cause you to get sick. And so the reason they didn't wash was because they loved, uh, wash their children was because they loved them and they were protecting them. Whereas we thought they, they, because they didn't wash them and, and keep the children clean, uh, they weren't loving the children. And we were looking things from a totally different perspective because theirs was a world of spirits and, and then these other uh, spirits were everywhere. And um, we had to learn to understand that. Mm. We had to learn to see the world from their perspective rather than from our perspective uh, because we made assumptions and a lot of assumptions, uh, but the assumptions we made came out of our worldview and out of our culture. And we needed to learn to see the world from their perspective and understand what their assumptions were rather than ours. And I think that's true wherever you go, whenever you engage people, whenever you, whether it's preaching the gospel or whether it's, mm. whether it's exhorting people um, uh, and teaching people how to live, you've got to get into their, you've got to step into their shoes or into their bare feet, as I would say, to, to, to do that. You can't do it from your perspective. You've got to understand where are they coming from and what does this mean to them uh, in their world rather than what does it mean to me from the world that I've come from. And I think that's incredibly important to, to teach 
students to do that, to learn that, um, as I say, that uh, it's a process of learning to communicate in a totally different way. Uh, but that's true not only in the jungles of West Papua, but it's true uh, from, from, from church to non-church. Just uh, the world out there, uh, outside the Christian ghetto, is very, very different. And I, I'm thankful to God that I spent eight or nine years working in a coal mine. Because that gave me the best education I ever received, regardless of my uh, Bible school training, my seminary training, doing my doctorate. I think I learned more uh, working in a coal mine, how to live out the gospel. Uh, in a way because there's that, a community as well in the coal mine, isn't there? Oh, incredible community. And at first I thought I had to talk about the God, but I really learned to, to in a sense, just be there mm. and allow the questions to come. And out of the context, the questions came. And I used to have, uh, I worked in the, the mines in northeast of England and then in Scotland, at Cadowan, uh, just outside of Steps. But when I moved, when I eventually moved to Scotland and worked in the coal mines, I made so many mistakes prior to that. Uh, when I became a Christian, uh, I said to God, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk. I'm not gonna let anybody know I'm a Christian. You're gonna have to give me any opportunities or, or do that." And, and I, I did that, and I didn't tell anybody. And I remember after a couple of weeks, I was, was began to work underground and. I went onto a new face and a uh, cold face and was working there. And the next day I came in and, and two of the men sitting and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes. And they just picked it up. And there were some Christians in the mine who were always going on. They were so religious and so verbal about the things. It, it really put people off. But... Um, I had some amazing conversations. And when I left the mine to go to, to BTI in those days, mm -hmm. at the Bible Training Institute, uh, the day that I left, I came from the pithead bus and walked to where the buses were, which was about a hundred yards walk. And probably about three, 400 men stopped me and, and, and shook my hand and wished me the best of luck. Mm. Wow. And as I walked there, and it took me 45 minutes to walk that 100 yards. Um, wow. It's almost you, as though they were proud of you as part of their family. Yeah, I was part of the community and they, uh, they appreciated who I was. Mm. Whereas there were some people who were always going on about Christianity and they just shied away from them. But I had lots of conversations, usually one-on-one -on -one when people took me aside. Um, and I think I learned a great deal there, but I had a lot more to learn. And I think, uh, I think um, 50 years later, I'm still learning. Well, I'm you know, I'm just looking at our time. We've, we've run out of time tonight. Andy, we've had an amazing conversation with you, Les. I really hope we'll have you back again. Don't you think so, James? Oh, absolutely, Les. I, uh, you wrote for us earlier in the year, so it was lovely to read your writing. But it's great to have met you and uh, hear more about your life, your fascinating life. Um, and thanks so much for sharing with I'm, us. I'm hoping that we might be able to, to bring you into the team in some way here on Sanctuary First. That we've been developing, um, we're developing um, with one of our, our colleagues, um, book reviews and book clubs mm -hmm. and opportunities for people to be led through different aspects of, of, of faith through reading and through a, mm -hmm someone leading them through that and that might there might be some there might be some books and might areas that might you might be worth recommending and then maybe a uh, running a book club where people can get to know you more and ask questions and yeah, grow yeah let's begin the conversation and see how things go and uh, yeah i look forward to that yeah and I'm sure you'll be writing daily worship again soon, Les. So. Just keep checking those emails. I'll be on yeah, to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. And we'll, we'll try and maybe get you in for a Sunday service at some point in the future as well. But thank you for being with us tonight because it was such a blessing. And Jim, I think you enjoyed it as well. I felt there's a, a bit of a synergy there between you and Les. 
Absolutely, it was a joy. I loved that point when you said about taking your shoes off because there's an old song which I love, Take Your Shoes Off Moses. And the last verse particularly is about stand still Moses, see salvation work. Well, listen, have you got the song there? Can you sing us yeah. out with the song? Let, let's do that. And just, uh, Ray, just fade us out when we run out of time. Well, God spoke to Moses at the burning, the burning bush, Lord, the burning bush. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am the Lord thy God. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. For I am the Lord thy God. Oh, go yonder, Moses, and smite that rock. Smite that rock, Lord, smite that rock. Oh, go yonder. Moses and smite that rock, for I am the Lord thy God. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. For I am the Lord thy God. We'll stand still, Moses, and so. Salvation work, stand still, Moses, and say salvation work. Well, stand still, Moses, and say salvation work. For I am the Lord my God. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. Take your shoes off, Moses, holy ground. Take your shoes off, Moses, you on holy ground. For I am the Lord thy God. For I am the Lord my God. Stand still, Moses. <laughs>